We're back on the Fan Morning Show. It's Baby Friday. We have inquired about the sleep tape, and it is in the Amazon shopping cart. It will be purchased. It's creepy <laughs> as hell, but we're going to do it. It's going to be great. Well, maybe we've, we'll, we'll be thanking him for uncovering a way that we sleep better after late night West Coast games. The Raptors tipped off at 10 p.m., really mm-hmm. not till 10.20. I was watching the clock. Was it not till 10.20? It is slow. Oh. Just start the games on time when you're over there. But maybe you need sleep tape to get a better rest Optimize. after that one. It's all about optimizing sleep. I wonder how Fred VanVleet's head felt when it hit the pillow last night. Relieved? Excited? Drained? Either way, I'm sure you got a good sleep. Uh, Donovan Bennett, host, writer, and producer at Sportsnet, host of the Going Deep podcast, joins us bright and early this morning. How's it go- going, Donovan? I'm good. I don't know if I slept uh, all that well after watching that basketball game. Fred did not go to sleep well. Like anyone who is in a relationship knows, like when you go to bed angry, like that's the worst sleep. It's no, like, like oh, I should have said moment? this. No, did did that look like cathartic no, to but... you? It, it, there was the moment, and for for our listeners who haven't been able to see the clip, like go on Twitter, it's there, where you can see him doing the calculation, which people in a relationship also do. It's like, do I want to say this? Am I going to say this? You know what? Screw it. I'm saying it. I feel like everyone has their own tactics, though. Like, you don't go to bed angry, but you also don't go to bed when something needs to be said. Exactly. Something needs to be said, and maybe that was the only way that he was going to be able to uh, shut it down last night. But it seemed like... He came to that game with a little bit of a snarl on. Like, it looked like he was mad at the official before he had reason to be mad at the official. Like, this is the big storyline of the week, clearly, because Scotty Barnes got kicked out of the game in Denver, and now this is what's happening with Fred. But it seemed like, okay, the big complaint was, yeah, preconceived notions or biases from the officials or them being too part of too much a part of the moment or too much a part of the actual storyline. But wasn't this kind of proof that players enter the game with preconceived notions about officials, too? Of course it was. Fred was a real housewife at a reunion last night where he came with receipts. He had stats in terms of how often certain officials had given him text. And this is my big issue with this because I tweeted after the Scotty Barnes incident, uh, nothing, you know, that mind-blowing that nobody pays to see uh, officials. They pay to see players. And yes, you have to curb behavior, but you also have to earn respect. And when you show someone up and make a big deal out of something that no one else would know other than you, you're putting your ego into the equation and not actually officiating the game or doing the thing that we're all here to do, entertain people. It's, It's a very forefront of our minds we have to remember that basketball at the professional level is an entertainment product and seeing the stars from the game walk down the tunnel and untuck their jerseys is not inherently exciting but i think this is the biggest issue we saw this a couple years ago you two remember where at the beginning of the year players were just getting texts for having natural reactions being upset and the nba was trying to essentially rewrite history on how players react and not have their officials showed up, but one, you have to be consistent. If Draymond Green can have a running conversation for three consecutive possessions with an official and not get a tech, then how is Scotty Barnes getting a tech for saying something under his breath or for Fred VanVleet to get a tech saying something to his own teammates, even if you don't agree with the message? And so I think, honestly, that 
the referees have put themselves in a position where they made their own bed. Now they have to live with it because players, whether it's Chris Paul and Scott Foster, or in this case, Fred Van Vliet, players go into these games believing that certain officials have it out for them because certain officials react to uh, the way they are personally. And then when you start with that premise, you know what the conclusion is going to be. Was there a little bit of leadership from Fred to get on that podium and to say what he maybe felt like he needed to say, possibly related to Scotty Barnes, uh, you know, incident on Monday? Was there a calculated, hey, I'm going to stand up for my team. I'm going to put myself in the crossfire here, take the fine because I'm a leader? Or is that misdirected a bit? And maybe leadership comes with being in the next game and not being suspended and playing hard and being able to play through these types of situations. Because if he gets suspended, it's like, well, you did that. And now you're not able to help your team Friday night against Lakers. So I think there was leadership twofold, but not exactly in the ways that you described. Mm-hmm. One is, if you watch the clip or read the transcript, he multiple times said, this is not the reason that we lost. This is not an excuse. So he wasn't using that as a talking point as to why the team struggled in that game, has struggled on the road, has struggled against teams above 500 post Yaka Pearl trade. So, so, so he didn't allow that to be the out and the talking point. However, he is making it a talking point. I think the other leadership he had was from his NBA PA member hat because he went in. He didn't just say it. He didn't just insinuate it. He gave great detail on how he felt, what the problem is, what the symptoms were, what in his mind the solution would be, knowing that yeah, players have complained about officials, coaches have complained about officials, but no one has got to that length to describe the issue, knowing that, guess what? Well, we're going to talk about it this morning on your show. J.J. Redick and Kendrick Perkins are going to find a reason to argue about it on first take. It's going to be a conversation for you know the next 24 to 48 hours until something else happens in the news cycle. And so I think he was putting on the forefront to be like, listen, we're tri- tired of trying to legislate this ourselves on the court. Like now we're going to put this in the court of public opinion and see how the NBA feels about their officials being part of the show. Yeah, that's interesting because if you separate like, I guess, church and state a little bit, like he's, you know, this is an NBA issue versus a Raptors issue. I, I think you can sort of make different judgments based on how you look at it or which way you're, you're choosing to look at it. But when it comes to the Raptors specifically, I think one of our main complaints all year is that there's been too many complaints that Nick Nurse you know, from the top down, he's always on officials. He's always red-faced. It seems like he's always feeling aggrieved. And it feels like that just permeates through the roster. Like, and, and everything Scotty Barnes knows in his NBA career is that, hey, the Toronto Raptors are hard done by. We're always not getting the benefit of the call. And it feels like this is more evidence, or felt like, for me at least, that this was more evidence that the Raptors just complain too much. Do you see it that way at all? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I, it, it is, um, you know, there's the reason why Nick Nurse has multiple beams of his mouth wide open because he's often aghast at calls uh, that go against, you know, him and or his team. I mean, he's even, uh, you know, been really upset at challenges that, you know, with the benefit of replay have gone against his team. And it is a bit uh, of an out. And I, I think that, you know, for better or worse is, part of the fabric and the DNA of the culture, not only the team, but the fan base. Like, you know, Raptors Twitter can be pretty toxic, and we do have 
a oversized inferiority complex and chip on our shoulder in terms of, you know, there's always some secret society that is against the Raptors, the NBA, and the league office, and Scott doesn't like this. And, you know, remember those two years where we had to play at 1230 on Saturday in the playoffs? Like, they still hate us. Like, all of this snowballs. And so we see everything through those lenses. And when you're a player or a coach and, you know, you are in this market and you are scrolling through dimensions, it's only natural for some of that to consciously or unconsciously affect the way that you interact and the way that you feel. And I think certainly, quite frankly, you know, the Raptors just haven't been good enough. Like, full stop. Calls aside, uh, you know, Project 6-9 and whether or not it works aside, whether you go all in or, you know, have a sale at the deadline aside, like, they have not played to their collective potential. You see the individuals play to their personal potential at times, but for whatever reason, it hasn't come together and even when we say well this is a different team post pearl trade they're six and five post pearl trade like they're one game above 500 they're zero and three against teams who are above 500 since uh they've got Jakob. so quite frankly they just haven't been good enough and they don't get the benefit of the doubt for the margin that you know officiating would change here or there they have not consistently played at a high level unfortunately no matter what the officials have been doing yeah, and that talent divide couldn't have been more obvious last night with Kawhi Leonard. Uh, things have not been the same from the Raptors' perspective, from a talent perspective, since his last game almost four years ago uh, with the Toronto Raptors. How, but how do you do? How do you view the Kawhi experience now? Like, what does it mean to you watching Kawhi Leonard now? Uh, it hurts. It's like you know you've got that ex that's just doing so much better after you. And you try not to, but, you know, you're scrolling through the IG. You're seeing them living their best life. Six and over to the Raptors since joining the Clippers. Like, he's essentially the player version of Dwayne Casey that's come back to curse us. I, I do, though, think uh, as much as it hurts, the pain is so acute because we continue to see him, you know, dunk all over our centers whenever he comes back. That, like, when we take a step back, is the Clippers Kawhi experience been great. Like I hope that they kept the receipt and maybe they can take it back like for some Apple care because he hasn't played consistently. They haven't won consistently. We're talking about the Clippers also being in the play and like not just the Raptors. They might play the Lakers in the play in a scenario that I don't think anyone in that organization, including Steve Ballmer and all his toilets wants to see. So I, if the Clippers don't forget about make a conference championship, if they don't win a round, like this is a huge mistake. And a lot of that is because he has not been available. We've seen so many injuries in the NBA this year. Bunch of our greatest all-stars weren't in the all-star game for that reason. But Kawhi essentially has had the same injury since 2018, like a chronic issue with his knee. And so it does hurt to see, you know, you know, your old Bay like winning without you. I'm just not sure. Like after the all expense, uh, you know, trips that we see on Kawhi's IG that he's like living a better, like day-to-day life. And I, I don't know. I don't know if Kawhi Leonard is, a Raptor and load managing for the last couple of years. If this team is in an appreciably better spot. 
So last night the Raptors script uh, starts to look similar at times. Um, they had a great start like they did the other night. They they limited um, opportunities for most of the Clippers team and then they fall off in the middle and then they make this last push with two minutes left in the game, which is always exciting but hasn't always proven to be successful. Um, where do things start unraveling with the Raptors in games that seem to go one way with a large run for one team and then another run for the Raptors? It, it's like a roller coaster of emotions I'm sure when you're watching. Is it uh, having to put the bench in is it the starter shouldering too much is there someone underperforming that starts that trickle effect if you're trying to find a, um, a starting point for when the unraveling happens with the raptors where do you begin i, mean, I think like basketball's a, a, i think a simple game that we make complex like the whole point and you can study in terms of paint touches or paint points the whole point is like trying to get easy shots and trying to make the other team take tough shots. And that was the game last night. I disagree with Nick Nurse post game when he said, you know, the defense was pretty good except for the four or five straight line drives to Kawhi Leonard. They're like that's a big except, right? It, 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 the Raptors took 25 more shots. They had more opportunities to score. They outscored uh, the Clippers 39 to 18 from three. Like, analytics will tell you, you're in a really good spot. You're going to win most of those games. They shot it at a high percentage, 41% from three. But they were 21 for 53. In the paint, the closer they get to the basket, they have a difficult time scoring. That doesn't make sense. And then when you allow, on the flip side, your opponent to shoot 55% from, uh, you know, from the field and 70% from the paint. Essentially, like, my science grade nine average from the paint. Like, that's <laughs> much much too high so I, I i to me i think everything the raptors do seems extremely difficult offensively mm-hmm. you're straining to score it takes all of your energy and then on the flip side even though they have so many again individual great defenders from a team concept you see so many easy baskets and then over the aggregate of a game or a season those things add up i think to me, that's been the fundamental problem. Uh, last one here for you, Donovan, before we let you go, bouncing around a little bit. But uh, excitement around the WNBA and the Toronto game um, in about a month and a half. Um, and then, obviously, the next question is the WNBA in Toronto maybe having uh, a future connection there. Uh, just just the level of excitement that you have, especially yesterday with all these announcements and seeing the ticket sell out almost uh, within a couple of hours, just with the potential that Toronto has here for a WNBA team in the future. Number one, I'm so excited. I'm like <laughs> proactively trying to think of my fit. Like, what do I do? I go with a super jersey? Do I go with uh, it's uh, basketball, not women's basketball mm. hoodie? Like, so lots of choices. So stay tuned. Uh, but I've had so many texts saying, do you have a connect? Do you have a link? But I want to go Because I'm this looking. Game. <laughs> no, no, like essentially, it's like this is like OVO, like fest level in terms of people <laughs> trying to get tickets and afraid of what they might look like when they hit the secondary market. It's amazing. Like the NBA, the NBA has clearly, you know, grown not just in Toronto but in, in Canada. Right? It's 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 our uh, national sport for us at this point. And I think women's basketball is the exact same. Quite frankly, watch the, the NCAA tournament. We're producing female basketball players at a higher level at some times than we are uh, male basketball players. And everyone is excited about expansion, as am I. 
but there is hot competition in terms of what expansion might look like in WNBA, which is a great thing, right? You know, Vegas has been a huge success. You look at areas that people think they're probably going to go to Portland because they've uh, supported women's sports the, uh, for a long time. The Bay Area because of, you know, the amount of money and Steph Curry could essentially buy a WNBA team and sleep if you wanted to. But I do think, you know, not even Toronto, Canada is in that conversation. Could it be Vancouver, right? The, 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 the new Grizzlies. Could it be Montreal or you know, could it be in southern Ontario, specifically in Toronto? So I think the demand and the fact that the tickets are sold out in 10 minutes, uh, it shows that. And, and, you know, Tangerine has said they might release some more tickets. I had a long conversation with Kate Fagan on my podcast, Going Deep, about, you know, the growth of the W and its culture. And we're seeing that growth in Canada. So, yeah, I'm, I'm so excited. We... Some people feel like we should have a domestic league in Canada and maybe not a WNBA team. I think there's room for both, mm-hmm. and I hope that we see both in our lifetime. I agree. I agree. May 13th exhibition game between the Sky and the Lynx, and, of course, uh, take, a, take a look out on Ticketmaster for maybe some more tickets being released, but exciting nonetheless. Make sure everyone checks out your interview there at Going Deep Podcast. Uh, it's great to have you back on the show here, Donovan. Thanks for coming up nice and early for us, and we'll chat soon. Anytime. I've been a host, writer, producer, Sportsnet, and host of the Going Deep podcast, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. WNBA, baby, it. Uh, I was slow to the tickets, slow to the draw, and I did not get any. But I'm hoping that maybe yeah. this you might have to go the media route. This beautiful, beautiful company we work for maybe has a connection. So a couple rules there, a couple life lessons. You know, not going to bed angry. I felt like we learned a lot in that. Also, with the with the X though, with Kawhi, don't scroll, delete, block, unfollow. Yeah, you think. don't have to do it. You only have to do it what, a couple nights a year if you're the Raptors. You only have to deal with it a couple nights a year. That's the last one. Sometimes he, he just won't be available. Maybe you only have to deal with it once, maybe zero times a year. <laughs> uh, but uh, no need to dwell on on Kawhi Leonard. No need to watch him every night, right? Thankfully, it's it's nice West to Coast. see him healthy and playing. But then we could just. We can unfollow now until next season. I'm actually, I, I don't know how I feel. I, I feel like I haven't, I haven't been able to decide if I want to see him have more success. Come on. He brought I, a championship here. I know, but like, I don't like the Clippers. I don't like Balmer as much as he loves what? toilets. He loves like toilets, it's not man. all that exciting to me. I feel like I'm going to have a hard time cheering for the Clippers, but then we might get to the scenario. If they're just there, if they're in a Western conference final, maybe I'll be like, okay, let's see it. Let's see it again, Kawhi. Not over the beam team. Make me feel something. Beam team oh, or the bust, beam team. baby. I'm, I'm all over the beam. Hell yeah. Bad news in the in the Western Conference in terms of like intrigue and all that with Kevin Durant being injured last night. How about night. that? Oh my God. That Slipping was so sad. Slipping on a wet sad. floor in warm-ups. Like not great. If you're a fan of the beam team though, which you are, mm-hmm. it's not the it's worst thing in the world, at least for getting the second I've been seat. lighting the beam, Justin. You know that. I know you have been. Last night though, the, uh, the threads were just, here's... Kevin Durant coming in. Here's the like his home debut, right? So much excitement. You got the tunnel shot. You got the fit. You got him talking. And he's so excited. And like they thread this on Twitter, right? Boom, boom, boom. And then the last thread is Kevin Durant to miss uh, tonight's oh, game due man. to ankle um, injury sustained <laughs> in, in warmups. And then there's the video, and it, he's a little floppy. He's kind of got Bambi legs though. Like it's like looked like he was like on ice. You know how Bambi does a little yeah, thing where she's yeah. like, Ooh. yeah, 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 yeah. 
Unfortunately, it looks like uh, it could be a little bit of a sprain there. But How fired do you think the uh, the mop guy is? Oh, mop guy is long gone. <laughs> no second chances for mop guy? <laughs> Bye-bye. Um, all right, we got tickets to give away. Once again, to Sam Hunt coming to Budweiser stage on July 16th as a part of his On the Outskirts tour with special guest Brett Young and Lily Rose. We've been giving away tickets all week long. And to enter, you tune into us, the Fan Morning Show. Listen for the daily code word. And today's code, code word is vandalizer. Text mm. vandalizer to 59590 right now for your chance to win. We're giving away one last pair of tickets tomorrow. And if you don't win with us, you can secure your tickets by going to Ticketmaster.ca starting tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern. Maybe look for some WNBA tickets while you're at it. Sam Hunt, Bud Stage, July 16th. Code word is vandalizer. Perfect. <laughs> Many reasons to go to Ticketmaster.ca. That's a good one. Um, I'm, I'm, there's some resale tickets already. I, somebody just sent a link into the text line, but... I'm going to hold out hope that our bosses are listening. Oh. For. Are, I'm talking are, about WNBA, not so are, are you like. I'm uh, talking about WNBA. Oh, yeah, no. Okay. Are you like Donovan, just like already thinking about what you'll. No. That's how, pre- you'll, that's, how that's you'll show two, up two to the event? Two months away is a little bit for the This outfit. is going to be the event of the year. Oh, you know it. It's going to be the event of the year. I can't wait. Um, for that it's and. It's a one night only, at least yeah, for now. That's it, for, for sure. That's, uh, so for WNBA. May 13th, and then July 16th, Sam Hunt. That's Vandalizer at 590-590. We got about five minutes before we have to take a break. And we have Arden's Dwelling on the other side um, joining us from Dunedin. Talk about that Grapefruit League MVP, but we want to do something called hit or miss. Daniele's idea, producer Daniele, just coming in clutch. Brainchild. Creative soul he is. Put in some questions here. Right. And we are going to say whether they are a hit or a miss, which is like... It's a real simple game. It couldn't be easier. You want to start? Are you leading the dance? All right, first question here. Why don't we start with some Blue Jays because we're going to have a little Blue Jays power hour here. I think that's a great call. Question is, after being relegated to the bullpen last season, you say Kikuchi will spend all of 2023 as a starter. Hit or miss? You know I don't want to be negative about the Grapefruit League MVP. But I think it's a miss. I think it's a miss. Like, it's a lot to ask for. Like, a lot of things have to go right to be a part of the rotation for the entirety of 2023. Yes. Like not only does he have to pitch really well, he's got to stay healthy. I think the odds would put this in the miss category, maybe 40% miss. I know you're not asking for percentages. It's a hit or miss. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's 100% either way. I do think, though, you got to go miss for that reason because... It's more likely that there's a hiccup along the road, at least somewhere. But the fact that we're even asking that question right now is a huge Mm -hmm. deal because three weeks ago, this was a full-fledged, no doubt about it, Grand Slam upper deck miss. (laughs) But you say has has pitched himself through seven Mm -hmm. innings, at least in spring training as a possible you know, fixture in this rotation so far. I also have to go with miss uh, for some of those similar reasons health being one of them, just longevity of what we've seen and just trying to put some pause on it's been, what, four starts, three starts of of really great performance. But there's also an opportunity that maybe the Blue Jays are in it at the trade deadline and they add someone and that would be a great opportunity. But maybe you say he's the one that ends up being relegated to the bullpen. 
I think right now he's got fifth starter in the palm of his hand. I'm not too concerned right now about Mitch White challenging for that, but it is Yusei Kikuchi. He had he has spent his entire season or his career so far as a starter, but he had last year and half of the year before that have been pretty, I guess, uncharacteristic, but when does that become characteristic of the guy? So I'd like to believe that maybe until the trade deadline, we see a really great Yusei Kikuchi and the Blue Jays are really close and they get another arm and they have that post-trade deadline boost and maybe that means that he's been put elsewhere. But I think for the question to be all season as a starter, I'm going to have to put it in the miss category, but could be for a good reason. For now, I think one thing that also helps him, he's the only guy up there throwing left-handed until Hunjin Ryu. I mm-hmm. guess that's another factor here. If Hunjin Ryu shows up in September, well, who's going out? We did get Hunjin Ryu reports yesterday. Just shed some weight, didn't he? Yep. Apparently, he lost 15 pounds. So that may or may not well. be a good thing. It doesn't really matter much for pitchers. But either way, uh, Kikuchi's the lefty. Mm-hmm. And if you want a lefty to mix things up, we're talking about that with the batting order. I think we should talk about it with the rotation as well. Like, that should help him, you know, maybe break a tie, if anything, with a right-handed uh, thrower. But if Hunjin Ryu shows up, maybe that's the thing that takes him out of the uh, rotation. And if that's the case... I guess that's best-case scenario for the Toronto Blue Jays. The full Hunjin Ryu update from Korean uh, reporters was that he was playing uh, catch and long toss every other day and doing daily indoor training. He shaved off 15 pounds the last two months. He's planning on starting bullpen pitching in April and targeting a second-half return. Here's your Hunjin Ryu update for Thursday, March 9th. What do you have more faith in? Ryu to make an impact or Pearson to make an impact? Oh, I knew you were going this way. Did you? (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, Pearson to make an impact. A positive one. An impact. Yes. Not in the starting rotation, of course. Like, if that's a question, no. no, no, no. But I I think he could, this could be the. More more helpful to to the Blue Jays. More helpful to the Blue Jays this season, Pearson or Ryu? Pearson. Okay. I'll say Ryu. Oh, I can't believe I said that. But girls, you got a girl's got a dream, you know? (laughs) Um, Okay. Yeah. I guess we should take a break and get to. Our guy, Arden Zwelling, on the other side. Don't keep him waiting. We can continue with hit or miss after we chat with him. Maybe we can ask him the same question. Hanjun Ryu or Nate Pearson, who makes the bigger impact for the like Toronto it. Blue Jays? That's next on the other side of the break. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back on the Fan Morning Show, Sports 590. The Fan, it's Baby Friday. Let's head down south for an update from Dunedin with Arden's Welling Blue Jays reporter at Sportsnet and co-host of At The Letters podcast and social media star for the Toronto Blue Jays Looney Dogs campaign. <clears throat> I'm not bitter at all, Arden. How'd that go? Uh, how did you get that opportunity? Because I am just waiting for my DM request to, uh, to show the Blue Jays had asked or had pondered about me as well. Well, when you got it, you got it, Uh And when it comes to acting shops, uh, you know, I'd say that I've got it, clearly. You certainly so do. That's, I that's think how it came my way. the sales skyrocketed for those Tuesday night games <laughs> after seeing you and uh, your buddy there, Ben. But, uh, yeah, I'm excited for Looney Dogs. And I made this proclamation on the radio that every single time that the Blue Jays host the Looney Dogs which is 11 games, I believe, I will wear my Looney Dog costume, which I own, on the radio for the entire show. So just something to stay tuned for. I'm ready to grind. She's I'm, doubling down on this. I would like this to, is, to She's to not deterred at all. 
Are you wearing it to the ballpark as well? I would certainly wear it to the ball. I want to be in that lounge, that special lounge at the Looney Dog counter, and you guys teed it up great. It got me interested. I will be there. Okay. You sold me. I, was I think we're going to see a lot more of those this year. Like I think we're going to see a lot of folks in the hot dog costume I, this year. And I will cool. be helping lead the parade to the 200 level outfield Schneider's porch. Okay, I'll be there. We can wave at each other. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll see you there. All right. Um, okay. So we we talked about some storylines still that we're intrigued about following at spring training, and obviously, it um, you, you can't take everything right away um, to heart or with a grain of salt, you got to think about the impact long-term of some of these things. But man, you say Kikuchi has been grapefruit league MVP so far. Justin and I are getting a nice golden grapefruit bust created to present to Kikuchi. If he continues this, um, how, uh, how's he been looking down there and are we biting off more than we can chew here? Well, and it might be a bit of a reality check to look at some of the previous winners of grapefruit league <laughs> MVP on that plaque. <laughs> and even see if you can recognize some of the names. Uh, so there has to be a lot of caution when mm-hmm. it comes to Grapefruit League results. But it beats the alternatives, right? If he yes. was going out and walking the world or giving up missiles all over the yard, looking uncomfortable in the mound and not find, and finding his release points or not being in the zone, that would be really bad. So you're going to take this, obviously, and I think you're going to take some of the process indicators that you're seeing from him as well one of the biggest things to me is he'll follow up a walk with a first pitch strike really consistently this spring so that is huge how many times last season did you see a four pitch walk from Yusei Kikuchi and then suddenly he was 3-0 to the next hitter in a blink of an eye so the fact that he is composing himself and getting back in the zone and not letting things snowball is really good I think that the slurve that he is throwing now he might call it a curveball the Blue Jays might call it a slider it looks like something in between whatever it is it's working for him from a bit of a different angle uh and with a a bit like a velocity that can kind of in between where his cutter and his breaking ball was last year sort of high 80s uh it's been really useful for him so you'll take those process indicators and the Blue Jays certainly hope you can carry that over into the regular season so lots of positive things, obviously, for the Grapefruit League MVP so far. Uh, but, you know, it's it's an important spring training or ramp-up process as well for Jose Barrios. Maybe more important to the Blue Jays that Barrios gets things on track. And I know he's not with the Blue Jays right now at Puerto Rico. Uh, but were there, were there signs, were there positive, encouraging signs with Barrios uh, in his work that he got done in Dunedin before embarking on the World Baseball Classic? Yeah, chatting with him after uh, both his outings, he was he was really encouraged with how his sinker was playing and how he was locating it to either side of uh, of the plate. That's really huge for him. It's just the lanes that he is using with his sinker and staying off of the heart of the plate because it was really a big problem for him with his fastball last year was he was just leaving it in really poor spots, like spots where hitters do a lot of damage. And then you couple that with a, a little bit of tipping that was going on and all of a sudden you have hitters who understand that a fastball is likely coming and then see it in a place that they love to swing and can get to their barrels. So that's a really tough combination. So I think a sinker command to either side of the plate is really important. And then sort of tunneling his breaking ball off of those pitches. Uh, he's getting used to the clock as well, which is an adjustment for him. Uh, he's playing around with pitch bomb, like the reverse pitch bomb, where pitches call their pitches a little bit, so I think he felt good about how that process went. Uh, really intrigued to see how it goes at the WBC, because look, in Grapefruit League, 
guys are working on things. I want to work on my curveball today, or I want to throw a lot of change-ups. I want to try some first-pitch breaking balls, whatever. Like, guys are kind of tinkering. At the WBC, you're trying to win. You are being competitive, and you are going out to pitch as well as possible. So, in a way, it will be a very interesting true test of where Jose Barrios is at right now with some of the adjustments he's been making. We saw Alec Manoa again yesterday. What's the vibe around him? Uh, what's different this spring? What sticks out? What's maybe not different? What's what's sort of the main thing that sticks out to you when, when uh, monitoring Alec Manoa's spring and his ramp-up process towards the season? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the vibe because he's such a pro. He's so mature um, and advanced for his age. You forget that he's only 25 and he's still very young in this game. He's just beginning his third season because of how advanced his approach to spring training is. Like he is going out and working on different sequences and and different uh, ways to set up his various pitches. Like he's going out and trying to read swings and trying to decipher a hitter's game plan and countering that and and really thinking on the mound and then really figuring out different ways to maximize his arsenal of, of pitches and deploy them differently and really stay ahead of the league, which now has like 300 innings of major league data on him and of video and of tendencies and heat maps and, and all of the stuff that goes into scouting at the professional level. Now, like he's working really hard to stay ahead of that stuff. It's, it's, it's remarkable just to see like how mature and advanced he is for his age. You, you forget that he is really still very young in this game and still relatively new to the major league level because he just carries himself like a veteran. Alec Manoa made his second start of um, spring training we saw on Wednesday, but um, want to know more generally who's adjusting well to the realities on the mound um, and who isn't. Is there still a ramp up process for anyone that you got your eyes on over the next two to three weeks where they still got some kinks to work out, still got some some things to learn with all the new rules and, and just getting into it here in spring training? Well, the thing with the Blue Jays rotation is beyond Manoa, who I was kind of saying carries himself like a veteran, they all are veterans. Kevin Gosman's 32, Chris Bassett's 34, uh, what, Yusha Kikuchi's 31, 32. I mean, Jose Barrios obviously has been around for a while. So these are all individuals who know how to get themselves ready for a big league season. Like, I don't think that there's many growing pains there. So, and even for guys who are having to make adjustments like Kevin Gosman with his pre-pitch setup and kind of the toe tap in his delivery and making sure he's coming to that full body stop so that he doesn't violate MLB's Bach rule. And so that the individual with the timer up in the press box running the pitch clock knows when to stop it. Uh, he's going to make that adjustment just fine because Kevin Gosman has been making those adjustments throughout his entire career. He's been doing this for seasons now talking to Chris Bassett. Uh, yeah, he's telling me about how he's throwing with less velocity purposefully mm. right now at this time in spring, because he wants to build up appropriately and deliberately. And he's learned how to do that over however many spring trainings the guy has. It would be probably over a dozen. Um, he doesn't want to light up the radar gun in March. He wants to haul innings through June, July, and August and then be on a postseason mound in October feeling his best. So these are some of the things that some of these really veteran pitchers have learned over their time in the game. And uh, I think you're just seeing them execute that in a, a thoughtful way 
uh, this camp. So uh, that that's kind of where that the Blue Jays rotation stands right now. We've got Arden's Welling, Blue Jays reporter at Sportsnet Coast of at the Letters podcast on the line with us from Dunedin. So. Um, Wondering if you have a little bit of an update on Vladdy's right knee. Um, took batting practice. It looked like he was doing a little bit of light running on Wednesday. Um, obviously, the, he withdrew from the World Baseball Classic, which seemed to be his decision and a mature one in that. Um, encouraged by the recovery process so far, and have the Blue Jays said anything about how they're going to ramp him up um, cautiously down the stretch? Yeah, 100% his decision to withdraw from the World Baseball Classic, and I think caution is the right word to use here because this is the sort of thing that might, like if Vladimir Guerrero Jr. had this injury during the regular season, it might not be an IL stint. It might just be two to three days out of the lineup, uh, try to work around an off day if you have the luxury of doing that, and then probably get Vlad in for some DH plate appearances and pinch run for him late in the game. Like it's that sort of thing. But with where we're at right now, early in March with three weeks to go before opening day, there's no sense in pushing anything. Like there's no sense of letting anything get worse. These games don't matter. And Vladimir Guerrero Jr. demonstrated over the games that he was in earlier in this camp that he's feeling pretty locked in. He has some of the hardest hit balls in this camp. He was crushing home runs. So uh, this is a guy whose timing seems down and seems to be recognizing pitches very well. So, you know, as you said, the Blue Jays are going to be cautious with this thing. He'll continue hitting uh, in batting cages, uh, you know, throughout the weekend. He's done some straight line running to this point. The next step there would be just moving laterally and rounding the bases and like really increasing the intensity of the running that he's been doing. So expect to see those updates through the weekend. And I think the Blue Jays are going to reassess on Sunday, like at the end of the weekend, about when he could get back into games. So as Ailish mentioned, we were kind of like circling the, the storylines that we, or the interesting, uh, you know, nuggets or, or th- developments that we had circled here uh, for the remainder of camp. And Brendan Belt was high on that list for me. Uh, we haven't seen him take an AB yet. Uh, and, and why I think it's most interesting is that I feel like we slept on his role just a little bit when it, in terms of importance. Like, it seems like he might be earmarked for more than people gave him or initially thought uh, when he was originally signed. What do you think the role for Brendan Belt is going to be? And is it, is it maybe more expansive than originally thought? Uh, I thought that it was originally uh, adjudicated, or or appropriately, I should say, adjudicated. Like, I think that he's going to see a ton of DH plate appearances, particularly against right-handed pitching, and I think he's going to spell Vladimir Guerrero Jr. at first base. You know, like, he's he's here to play, and he's a really, really good hitter uh, when he is healthy, and he just did not have health on his side uh, last season. Obviously, underwent a knee procedure to correct something that was nagging him for a very long time. That's why the buildup has been somewhat deliberate this spring because, uh, you know, you, you want to make sure the belt is, is in a really good place physically to not be hit in the IL in May with, with knee inflammation. Like, you want him to be available because when – his bat is available. It's really impactful, and particularly at Rogers Center, where you've now got this like 359-foot power alley in in right center field. Brandon Belt can just like lob uh, golf balls over that wall 
all season long. This is a left-handed hitter coming from Oracle Park, which is like the worst place for a left-handed hitter to hit. Um, I, I'm not sure what the power alley to left center would be at Oracle off the top of my head, but it's a lot more than 359, Justin. I'll tell you that much. Mm. So uh, I, it's they're good dimensions for, for Brandon Bell, and uh, I don't know exactly when you're going to see him in games this spring, but uh, here's the thing. Brandon Bell had nine plate appearances last spring and then hit a home run on opening day and had four multi-hit performances in his first six games. And two years ago, he had nine plate appearances during spring training again and then went out and had like a 970 OPS that season. So I think as long as Brandon Belt can get nine plate appearances this spring, it seems like he'll be ready for the season. Spring's not much of a thing. That's uh, that's great to hear because uh, it, it feels like he's going to be pretty important in that little... Uh, advantage he might have at Rogers Center will play a massive role in how much of an impact he can have. How about the other newcomers, Dalton Varsho and Kevin Kiermeyer? In what ways have they made an impact on spring training? Well, you see the defense with Varsho immediately. Like it comes as advertised. He led um, MLB in outs above average for outfielders last year, and uh, you, you can see why I've already seen him make a, a couple of really spectacular plays. Uh, and then with Kiermeyer, uh, I mean, the defense is unquestioned. He's like a Mount Rushmore center field defender, but you notice the speed and the way that he impacts the game on the base pass, the aggressiveness that he has going first to third, going second to home, even just like beating out ground balls at the first baseline, stealing bases, being active with his, with his leadoffs, which is a huge thing this year with the disengagement limits on pitchers so I, I really noticed that uh and it was funny talking to him the other day he uh he ripped the double and i was doing the uh, the on-field reporting for the broadcast and so i got to see him like really cut loose and turn around first base uh and i said to him after i said man you were you were coming in hot like you were really racing there and he said, man, that is just March speed. Wait till you see what, what April speed looks like. I went back and looked at it, and you know what? He was right. He was a tick below his career average in sprint speed on that run. He was around 28 feet per second, and he's been up to like 29, even 30 feet per second uh, in season in recent years. So it does seem like, you know, sort of Bassett-ish. He is holding something back a little bit in the spring and not quite uh, cutting it loose. And I think that his speed and aggressiveness on the base pass in the regular season is going to be a big difference maker for the Blue Jays. Somebody that we saw some reports about um, making their recovery process was Hunjin Ryu yesterday from Korean Reporters. Seems like he's making some steps ahead, uh, looking for a second half return. Now, Justin and I, before we brought you on, um, randomly decided to discuss who would make more of a impact this season with the Blue Jays? If that's Hanjun Ryu or Nate Pearson. Now we're going to ask you the same question. Who do you anticipate making more of an impact for the Toronto Blue Jays this season? I would have to go Nate Pearson because he's healthy right now and has the advantage of uh, the first half of the season being able to be impactful. Mm -hmm. uh, so with coming off of Tommy John surgery for Ryu, you just never know how a pitcher is going to come back from that, how they're going to respond to that, if there's going to be any complications in their return to the mound. Some guys start ramping back up and deal with a lot of soreness and discomfort and kind of have to take a step back. So, look, I've seen Ryu uh, in, in camp throwing from flat ground. I've heard some positive reports about his, his conditioning and, and just where he's at physically. That's all good to know, but you just never know until a guy actually gets on the mound and starts trying to, to throw baseballs accurately at a high rate of 
speed, uh, even though Ryu is only like 89, 90, uh, 91 on his best days, um, that, that's still going to be a, a lot more stress on his arm than, than he has experienced in a while with, with the long rehab from Tommy John surgery. So there's just always uncertainty when you're yeah, returning from that. So I would say Nate Pearson in, in this debate, just because he is better positioned today to impact the Blue Jays. Well, since I also selected Nate Pearson, obviously that's the correct answer, and I should be a also co-host of At The Letters Podcast as an insider here. Um, but yes, I, I think there's a lot of excitement around Nate Pearson because it seems like he's changed his expectations as well for what he can provide to this team. How do you see them properly utilizing what he can bring to this roster, which has changed, I'm, I'm sure, over the last couple of years, what Nate Pearson's ceiling is, what his, his power is, what his expectations are. If you're trying to map out Nate Pearson's season with the Blue Jays, uh, what is that in your perspective? Yeah, he's in a great spot physically and, and mentally from talking to him and from from talking to people around the team. I think you're going to see him pitch today, which is uh, always fun to see him lighten up the radar gun. And uh, for me, like seeing him utilize this new curveball that he's been developing, um, he used it throughout the Dominican Winter League over the off season, and it was really successful for him. He used to have that kind of big looping rainbow curveball that was like, I don't know, mid to high 70s. Uh, kind of classic 12-6. Now he's got this like power spike curve that he's throwing a lot harder and that is like a really cool weapon off of his fastball. It really jumps on hitters and gets some uncomfortable swings and when Pearson can like spot it down in the zone or like you know pick corners with it for strikes uh, early in counts, it just opens up so many avenues for him. So it's interesting to see how that plays off of like the obvious high octane 100 to 101, which is going to play at the big league level. As far as his role this year, uh, look, he's going to start with three outs. Like, get three outs, be a one-inning reliever, and once you dominate that, maybe we can increase the role. And maybe we can start thinking about, okay, you're coming back out for a second inning and utilizing some of the length that you have as, as a former starter. And now maybe we're you're getting four to five outs. Now maybe you're getting six. Hey, maybe you take a full trip through the order uh, after Yusei Kikuchi went two trips through in, in a start. I mean, that, that's where the Blue Jays would like to get. But for now, he is just sort of focusing on a three-out role that could be expanded down the line. So ideal, just to answer your question, ideal for Nate Pearson this year for the Blue Jays would be like anywhere from 70 to 100 innings of uh, you know a, a strong ERA and obviously a, a high strikeout rate and a low walk rate. They would love to get that full health, not on the IL, all those things, that would be the ideal outcome. But for now, it's you just focus on getting the three outs in front of you. And once you master that, you, you can continue to uh, to progress. What a, what a dream that would be, Kikuchi and Pearson uh, combining for seven strong innings. The vibes on this show the day after that would be uh, very, very strong. So it's a Schneider and Mattingly spring as opposed, as opposed to a Montoya one. <laughs> In your mind, like comparing these two, if there's much to really compare, what's the most obvious or interesting change from one spring to the next? Uh, they, they're all pretty similar, Justin, honestly. I mean, you, you, uh, you set different tones uh, off the top, and obviously John Schneider has been a very – he's been very hard on attention to detail and purposeful practice, making sure you're getting something. 
out of, uh, you know, out of the drills and out of the work that you're doing. Like, I do think that's important on a team like this with championship aspirations uh, and also with, like, a lot of veterans around and not a lot of battles. You know, the, the monotony and the, oh, the humdrum of spring could creep in really easily. So I think that setting that tone of attentiveness and attention to detail was, was important off the top. So that sticks out. But, like, really... Uh, this sort of stuff comes from the players and it comes from the culture that's created in your clubhouse by your leaders. Uh, and then also by the young players who are kind of coming up and getting assimilated to the big leagues and, and fitting in and then kind of seeing how things work and learning the ropes. So I think that really, you know, the culture of a team is very much leader and player driven from the athletes who are actually on the field. Uh, you know, managers can say all kinds of great things, and I'm sure that Charlie Montoya said a lot of these similar things about hard work and attention to detail, and, you know, majoring in the minors last year, uh, and we saw how it played out. So uh, I think it really does come from within the players, within the clubhouse. Uh, Erden's latest piece is on sportsnet.ca. Hitters are trying to catch up to Alec Manoa, but he's staying ahead. Uh, if you're if you're reading uh, the Blue Jays, you should be reading Arden's Welling uh, in the lead-up to the season. Arden, thanks for coming on, and uh, we'll chat again, hopefully, before you leave Florida. Sounds good. Do well, guys. That's Arden's Welling, Blue Jays reporter here at Sportsnet and co-host of At The Letters. Social media star, campaign Definitely. director. Oscars this weekend. <gasps> Late entry? I guess they did movies. It was That was a small movie. It was the tra- that was the trailer. Next year's the movie. Oh, okay, Vladdy. There you go. Um, let's take a break because we have Mark Messier on the other side. I don't want to keep him waiting. Former NHL Ford Hockey Hall of Famer, six-time Stanley Cup champ, and current ESPN analyst. The Maple Leafs got an influx of new players. Some of them will have to now wait a little bit in the wings, recovering. But he's a guy that has seen what it takes to be a championship-caliber team many, many times. Is this Leafs team different? Is this Leafs team bolstered enough to take on the Boston Bruins and co. And if not, how how can we manage another season of disappointment? Mark Bessie on the other side of the break.